Well, here we are, less than a week before Christmas. So many plans and gatherings, so much to do, so much to see. 2021 was going to make us forget all about 2020. After all, the majority were double-vaxxed against COVID, and the numbers of infected were dropping. Then just weeks ago, a new variant was uncovered in South Africa, and it's spreading like wildfire around the globe. And with it, more restrictions. Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. The new variant's now the dominant variant with some unique characteristics, one of which is its extreme transmissibility. The healthcare sector is bracing for the next massive wave of infections. How it will impact the system is yet to be seen. Our unpublished.vote question asked you, will the Omicron variant lead to a fifth wave of the pandemic in Canada? 24.3% said yes, 70.8% said no, 4.9% were unsure. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the new variant and where it could leave us physically, and in particular, mentally, since we are closing it on two years of the pandemic, Dean Carlin, professor of physics at the University of Victoria. Stephen Taylor is a professor of psychiatry at the University of British Columbia, as well as the author of The Psychology of Pandemics. Ray Watt Dianandon is an epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Ottawa. And Ray Mala, Ryan Mala is the senior director for Ontario of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And, and Ray, uh, we'll start with you. You've suggested the world focus on getting everyone vaccinated, which would seem to be the way to go. And then we had a response to, uh, on our unpublished uh, media site suggesting the richer nations not impose their views on them. Does that make sense to you? Sorry, my dog's barking now. That's Be quiet, doggy. Um, <laughs> the problem with that commentary is that it's confusing vertical programs with horizontal programs. A horizontal program is one it's a groundswell of linked networks and grassroots efforts and so forth. A vertical program is one where resources fall from heaven, meaning richer countries. And in global health in general, we, we, we frown upon vertical programs. They tend to be self-serving. They have a short, uh, impactful periods, and the funding streams are unreliable. Keep in mind that HIV was brought to a halt by vertical programs, by PEPFAR, by the American government spending a lot of money on specific uh, testing and treatment regimes. That's what the appropriate comparator here is. So the way we stop COVID nationally, I mean, globally rather, and prevent the spread of new and emergence of new variants is a vertical program where the wealthy contribute resources, time, money to create and distribute vaccines and respirators like nobody's business. This will not be solved via grassroots efforts uh, from the bottom up by people taking care of their neighbors, et cetera, which is all important, but the solution is vaccination and we get that done through massive investment now. Uh, Dean, you've been doing modeling on uh, Omicron. What uh, are the latest projections that you have? Well, the projections, of course, are very, very concerning because of the very rapid uh, growth in infections and therefore the rapid growth of uh, serious uh, disease and hospitalizations and death. Um, it is so rapid that we can't reliably project for more than two or three weeks just to the enormous growth rate. Um, 
if we have cases doubling every two or three days, if we have hospital demands doubling every two or three days, systems are going to be in a very difficult position within weeks. So these projections are, are very scary in my view. Uh, Stephen, let's face it, we're all tired of the pandemic. And for a lot of the anti-vax and hesitancy crowd, they seem to either not worry or, or not care. Now, in your book, you describe psychological reactance by these mm. people. What is it and how does it work? Um, well, people raised, I mean, I don't want to stereotype across cultures, but you can distinguish roughly between individualistic cultures in which people are raised to um, expect that individual rights and freedoms are paramount versus more collectivist cultures where you're raised to think more of your neighbours and community. That's just a, a very rough distinction. But for, for many of the Western countries, people are raised to, to um think that their rights are more important or very important. And for some people, they, they um, well, there's a personality trait called psychological reactance. And to put simply, it's a, um, it's a reaction that's a you're not the boss of me kind of allergic reaction. So if I come up to someone in a shopping mall who's not wearing a mask and I say, hey, you must have lost your mask, here's a mask, and this person is scoring high in this psychological reactance, two things will happen. If I try to persuade them to wear a mask, they will become angry and they will think of counter arguments. So people scoring high in this reactance measures, attempts to persuade them can backfire. And so we've been seeing that. And, and some communities have been trying nudges to persuade people, if not doing it for yourself, do it for your community. But um, a lot of communities are just trying the, the age old expedient of mandating things. You make things law and most people toe the line. Ryan, small business once again in the crosshairs of restrictions, and we quite a, we hear quite a bit about the mental health of of workers through COVID, healthcare workers, even help you know workers in the grocery stores, people on the front line. But we don't hear about the owners very much. Uh, is it the on again, off again change in policy that seems to happen all the time? Is uh, getting them feeling abandoned? I think so. I think that, uh, you know, the whiplash of we're not going to do this one week to starting to do it the next week, the fact that we, especially in Ontario, wind up with Friday afternoon announcements that take place 24 to 36 hours later. Um, once there are rules and restrictions, those seem to be ever changing. You've got local health units, the provincial health unit, the news that you're hearing federally. Um, it's an awful lot to keep up with. And we know from amongst our membership that, you know, keeping up with rules and regulation is difficult at the best of times. These guys don't have compliance departments to monitor government announcements every moment of every day. Um, so to, to have it happen during a global health crisis um, has just been an immense amount of pressure. It's not just keeping your business open. It's not just keeping your employees employed and paid and keeping your supply chains going. Um, but oftentimes, you know, these guys are very leveraged on the family side. There's second mortgages have been taken out on homes. Assets have been sold uh, or leveraged just to try to keep the business afloat. Um, and we've been very, very sensitive to the high level of stress that's there in the business community. Um, it, it is definitely very high, and I think we haven't quite seen the worst of it yet. Um, I think that that impact will draw itself out over the coming years. Omicron has uh, changed a number of things, and uh, Ray, in particular, now there's new messaging on masks, which is not a great thing because the messaging about masks has not been great for anybody. But what is now the, the situation for masks when it comes to Omicron? Yeah. 
So uh, it's not just Omicron, frankly. We know now that COVID is airborne. It's, it's transmitted by aerosolized particles. And we've known this for a while, frankly. It's just that public health has been slow to get on board that train. Experts have been sounding this along for many months, some since summer of last year. What this means is that for an aerosolized particle, aerosolized disease, the simple cloth mass that we're used to are simply insufficient. They do something, but they're not great. And those baggy blue surgical masks that are ubiquitous, they're not great either. They do something. I would say diminished transmission by about 40%, but the leakage on the sides and the tops and bottoms really is not uh, ideal. So with an aerosolized disease, you can imagine someone could walk in, uh, cough into a room, leave that room, and their aerosolized particles remain lingering for hours on end. And someone else comes in, inhales, and becomes infected that way. We think that's actually happened mm-hmm. in places like quarantine hotels and, and cruise ships and places like that. And that makes uh, contact tracing difficult. It makes creating causal links between exposures and infections difficult. It's why we have such a huge gap in the contact tracing data. So when it comes to masking, it means we need a better quality mask and we need what's called an FFR, a face-fitting respirator. And in Canada, that means an N95 or KN95 or something called a CN95, which is not a real designation, but a mask that resemble that form-fitting shape. And as a result, there's a run-on right now to acquire such masks. They're all sold out everywhere. And we should have had guidance about this months ago, and we should have had state-sponsored mass production and acquisition of these masks months ago. But finally, finally, everyone knows what we need to do. Uh, Dean, you know, the modeling that you've been doing, I'm wondering, what should we be looking for when it comes to the healthcare system being able to sustain the numbers that are expected to increase? Well, there is one big uncertainty, and that is how severe Omicron uh, infections will be. Uh, Some data points to it being lower uh, severity, so fewer hospitalizations per infection. And others, uh, other data, such as from Denmark, uh, suggests that it has the same severity. So, of course, the load on the healthcare system will depend on how many cases lead to uh, a required hospital attention. Um, And that that data will, I think, become more clear in the days ahead as we are seeing the rapid rise of Omicron in uh, both in Canada and also in the United States and Europe, where we also are tracking closely the hospitalization numbers. And so as we see the hospitalization rise with Omicron, we'll get an idea of how severe these Omicron infections are going to be and how quickly will the healthcare capacity be um, be reached. Unfortunately, I believe that that capacity limit is going to be reached before the end of this year in many locations. And um, but, but we should uh, wait to see this data as it's coming in. Uh, Stephen, uh, stress and anxiety are are high among healthcare workers. In particular, we see the protests in front of hospitals and and such, and and also the stress and anxiety of the vaccinated when it comes to dealing with a hesitant or unvaccinated. How do you suggest the vaccinated uh, cope with uh, you know with uh, the vaccinated, the anti-vax crowd, the you know the conspiracy theorists, or do you just ignore them altogether and just keep going on? Well, it's important to recognize that they are the hardcore conspiracy theorists uh, are a minority. They're a minority, but a very vocal minority. And that can give people the impression that they're more prevalent than they actually are. 
Um, if you engage a hardcore conspiracy theorist in a debate, you try and persuade them about something, they will conclude that you are part of the conspiracy. So it's very difficult to engage uh, hardcore conspiracy theorists. They've always been around. They were around for previous pandemics. And the conspiracy theories we're seeing today are recycled conspiracies from previous pandemics or outbreaks. So they've always been around, but they haven't had the voice that they're having this time around with COVID-19. Um, and that's partly due to social media and political issues, but all sorts of things. So I would suggest if you had a conspiracy theorist member of your family, maybe the best you could hope for is to agree to disagree. Um, I, again, depending on the nature of your relationship, you might engage them in dialogue, but be very careful because the chances are that you will just uh, reinforce their trenchant beliefs about whatever conspiracies they happen to be adhering to. Uh, Ryan, what are your members looking for from the government in terms of surviving this next wave? As we mentioned, they seem to be on the outside looking in or feel that way, at least. So I think first and foremost, it's funding assistance. I mean, we've got businesses failing, and this isn't because we're still selling pagers in a cell phone world. This is because governments have asked them to close, and they've asked them to close to protect public health and safety. And I think a lot of small business owners understand that. But fact of the matter is, is that, you know, only 35% of Ontario small businesses are at normal revenue levels for this time of year. That is a direct result of all of the, the closures and restrictions that we've gone through. Um, you know, the last time we had a meaningful support program in Ontario was April 7th. That was the last day the Ontario Small Business Support Grant was available. We went into our third lockdown on April 8th. Businesses like gyms and indoor dining were not restriction-free until September, October of this year, and a couple months later, we're back to 50%. In addition to that, and, and I think that this is important, when you talk to a lot of people, at least when I've talked to a lot of people over the weekend, there's a real sentiment out there that this is a lockdown. And I cannot underscore enough, it's not. Those businesses are still open. It might not be viable for a restaurant to be open at 50%, but they are open. You can still go there. And I think that the the fear that is out there is very palpable right now. And unfortunately for business owners is going to keep a lot of people home, even though the businesses aren't open. And that makes it even more important for the government to come in and provide funding, provide proper access to funding um, because even open, these businesses are going to be bleeding money every single day. What What's the fear they have? Uh, it's, it's watching the case numbers rise. And I mean, as, as I was listening to Dean talk, I mean, my own heart rate went up there a little bit. It's, it's a nervous time and there are a lot of uncertainties. And I think there are a lot of people who, you know, may rationally understand, you know, the restaurant, the movie theater, the gym is open, but are thinking in their heads, it's not safe to go. And that's something on the government communication side that we have not had since the beginning of the pandemic. Every time we've come out of lockdown, every time we've reopened businesses, the message has always been essential trips only stay home. And if you are a clothing retailer, if you are a uh, cafe on the corner, that is a really tough message to swallow because a lot of people aren't going to consider you essential the way that they consider a trip to the grocery store or the pharmacy uh, as essential. So as long as governments are, are still messaging stay home for the good of health and safety, they need to provide adequate funding to those businesses that are being affected by that uh, order or recommendation. Ray, when we when we look at Omicron, it's you know a lot of people call it, or at least looking at it, or hoping it's a silver lining because we hear it's the, the symptoms are are milder. Is, is that uh, a, a false sense of security for for people? I think it is a false sense of security. First of all, we think it's milder because of what we see in South Africa, but South Africa is not Canada. South Africa, the median age is about twenty seven. In Canada, it's forty four. I think 
And so, as we know, uh, it affects younger people much less seriously than older people. We think that South Africa probably has more natural immunity too, because they've been struggling with this disease for a long time, much less uh, mitigation tools present in the community, much less vaccination. And they've paid a price to get that high level of natural immunity, but that has possibly blunted the penetration of disease deep into that society. But even if it is milder, it has to be a lot milder. I mean, a lot milder to, to save us from the potential chaos in our healthcare system that's coming, right? So let's say, let's say we can infect the entire population of Canada in a matter of weeks. By the way, we can. That's how contagious this is. Um, that's 40 million people. And let's say 1% end up in hospital. That's 400,000 people in a matter of a few weeks. That will crumble our system. So people need to understand the law, the law of large numbers, which is even a tiny fraction of a large number is an unbearable burden on our system. We've got a slow transmission. That's the only solution. Uh, you know, Stephen, uh, when you were doing your book or writing your book, The Psychology of Pandemics, I'm wondering if you found any similarities between previous ones and what we're dealing with right now. The similarities are mind-boggling. There are far more similarities uh, between COVID-19 and past pandemics uh, than there are differences, to be frank. The, the debates over social distancing and social restrictions, I don't think people know, but these debates have been going on for 500 years. People have been debating lockdown for five centuries, if not more, and the same issues come up time and again, concerns about the restrictions on freedom, concerns about the socioeconomic impacts and other sorts of issues. So we, we haven't got lockdown right yet and we may never get it right. Lockdown was always intended as a short-term uh, intervention. Uh, it, it doesn't work well in long term. In long term, you get cycles, which cycles happen, cycles of lockdown or restrictions, followed by non-adherence or easing of restrictions, and people flock back to their social gatherings. You get a spike in infection, then you get another lockdown, and these cycles continue. And as they continue, people get increasingly frustrated and irritable, and pandemic fatigue sets in, and you get further non-adherence. Seems to lead to more division as well. Like, I don't think the world's been as polarized as it has been now. Well, that's the thing. Pandemics are polarizing in all kinds of ways. If you take communities where there are two sets of views on things, views on, say, the degree to which governments should be involved in controlling people versus um, more laissez-faire approaches, you get a pandemic and that's going to polarise those opinions even further. It's happened in all past pandemics as well, you know, um, polarised between government involvement or it even feeds into conspiracy theories about theories about governments trying to harm the populace. Uh, you know, Dean, we talked about uh, health, the healthcare system and, and its capacity. It's been, and will, it, will it be able to sustain with what is expected on the horizon? I'm wondering... Uh, if we had more hospital capacity, would that alleviate the issue or, or you know, just sort of delay it a little bit? Well, of course, it's not just hospital beds, but the yeah. um, medical professionals that are necessary. And uh, it's obviously very difficult to ramp up that kind of capacity, especially in a world where that capacity is going to be needed everywhere at the same time. So uh, there, there's no... Uh, a quick solution to this problem, but we do need a quick uh, answer. Yeah. Um, um, it's it's certainly entering a uncertain uncertain days. This wave is is nothing like our previous two waves, which were also driven by uh, 
variants of concern, Omicron is is so much different because of its ability to evade the uh, immunity that we had built up and, and invested so much uh, to to build up. It's uh, taken that um, mm. advantage we had out of our uh, out of our playbook to to a great extent. Uh, Ryan, I, I, I'm wondering, you know, entrepreneurship, uh, small business, obviously entrepreneurship, the uh, the heart of small business. But, you know, w- when you look at small business just getting absolutely pummeled for the last couple of years, are, are you kind of concerned, at least for uh, the CFIB, that, you know, people are going to start saying, you know what, I don't think I need to start a business. I don't need the headache anymore. I don't need the problems. You, say, so you, it- see, you see entrepreneurship dropping? I think there's some concern there. I mean, we asked our membership if you know you would recommend starting a business to someone today, and there's a very emphatic no um, right now, saying you know it's not worth the hassle. Um, at the same time, I was I was on another show over the weekend with a couple of business owners, and they were asked you know like are you guys feeling optimistic? And both of them kind of gave a heck yeah response. I mean, this is you know it's going to be hard, and we're going to get through it, but we are going to get through it. And I think to be a business owner, you have to be that by nature, right? Like you are you are taking on an immense risk, leaping into the unknown in a non-pandemic setting, and now you've got this coming at it. So I, I think too with the, I mean, we are going to lose a significant. We've already lost a significant number of businesses. We are going to lose more. I think there will be opportunity in those cases too. You know, if the restaurant on the corner fails, but was a popular spot there's likely going to be a restaurant that's going to replace it. I don't think sectors are going to disappear on us when we finally do get to the the other side of this. But what I would really like to underscore, especially with governments, is there are people behind those businesses that are going down. This is people's livelihoods. This is, in often cases, life's work, community institutions that are failing right now. And that does matter. There is a cost to that uh, socially. There is a, a a little bit of your community soul disappears when those businesses go down too. It is worth doing what we can to save them. Ray, uh, we talk about being double vaxxed and, and, you know, we've got vaccinated, double vaxxed and uh, non-vaxxed getting Omicron. I'm wondering where does the booster play a part here? We have um, two arms of the immune system. There's the humoral arm and the cellular arm. The humoral arm is antibodies. Antibodies offer what we call neutralizing immunity. That's prevention of initial infection. The cellular arm, T cells and killer B cells and things like that, offer long-term protection against serious disease. And that seems to last decades, maybe even lifetime, but, but you can't measure that. So what the booster does is it really supercharges the neutralizing antibodies, the, the humoral arm. We don't know for how long, might just be a few months, but it prevents or helps to prevent initial infection and probably transmission as well. So two vaxes probably strongly prevent serious disease because that cellular arm of your immune system is kicking in still. But the three vaxes can really slow transmission because the symptoms won't be there, an initial infection problem won't be there, the ability to transmit further won't be there. I think it's important for that to happen now to quash the transmission aspects of the Omicron wave. And we Sorry, Andrew. I was going to say that no, the booster then would reduce the transmissibility. Yeah, it would. If you think about it this way, at the very least, the booster reduces the probability of having symptoms. Mm-hmm. And symptomatic people are far more likely to transmit. So at the population level, that should diminish the ability of this disease to, to percolate uh, deeper into the community. 
You know, Stephen, uh, we are closing in on the holidays and plenty disappointed about the restrictions that have come in with this new variant. And well, when you consider vaccinations available, uh, boosters available, available, how do you suggest people who are sort of looking at the holidays with the glass half empty sort of approach it? Um, I guess what we need to do is look at things in the long, the long picture and acknowledge that this is frustrating, that people are frustrated. And... I think check in with yourself, pay attention to your own mental health during this period. It's natural for many people, if not most people, to feel low mood, to feel frustrated. Um, And at this time of year, it's it's too easy for people to resort to sorts of coping strategies that can create more problems in the longer term. And I'm thinking about drug and alcohol problems, which have been a, a major concern during this pandemic. So I would suggest check in with yourself. People have been hearing ad nauseum about stress management strategies, about things that they could do to tend to their mental health. The really simple ones are among the most effective. Get some exercise, get sleep, set a routine, watch your diet and watch your alcohol intake. If that's not enough for you, of course, check out the internet. The the internet is full of all kinds of suggestions, good, bad and otherwise, about coping with mental health. Beware of the more wacky ones with the extreme claims, but see if you can find something that fits with you. And it could be anything. It could be uh, re-energizing or revisiting a new hobby or, or things like that. But at this point, it needs we need to take it on a day-by-day basis. And if you're in a situation where your, your mental health problems are creating significant problems for you, then I'd talk to your family doctor. I think that's the best solution for the severe problems. And they can figure out what the diagnosis is and where you might best get help. Well, folks, uh, that was a quick 30 minutes. I want to thank you for joining us. Our guest today on Unpublished TV, Dean Carlin, Professor of Physics at the University of Victoria. Stephen Taylor is a professor of psychiatry at the University of British Columbia and the author of Psychology of Pandemics. Ray Waddianandon's an epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Ottawa, and Ryan Malice, senior director of the uh, for Ontario, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Now, this is our last show of 2021, and it's been quite a ride, both politically and in the pandemic. On behalf of the unpublished media team, we wish you all the best for the Christmas holiday season and a prosperous 2022. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>